0: We are continuing this morning in the book of Luke. We are continuing in Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, we come to this place where Jesus rejoices in spirit. Remember, he sends the 70 out, gives them the job to go out and to declare the kingdom is coming, declare the coming of the king and to go into all the various surrounding towns and and to declare that he is the king and the Messiah is returning. Remember, they, and he gives them power to do all the great miracles. To stamp out illness and disease and injury and also to cast out demons. And you'll recall that he did this and they come back and they're like, oh Lord, this is just so great. I mean, it was fantastic. You sent us out there and even the demons. I mean, we just, we just told them to, to go away and they, they departed. It's fantastic. And of course, Jesus says to them, "Uh, you know, I mean, that's all good, but don't just rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And then it says, at that very time, Jesus greatly rejoiced in his spirit. Now, what's really important about that is that is the only time in any of the Gospels, all four Gospels, that's it. That's the only time it says that Jesus rejoiced. Jesus is the man of sorrows. Jesus is continuously misunderstood. Jesus is despised and rejected. His own mother doesn't really understand. Remember when he stayed behind in Jerusalem and they, they got a couple of days out and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. They run back to Jerusalem to go find him and he's, and he's in the temple. And he looks into him and he says, didn't you know I had you didn't really look for me, right? I mean, you knew I was here. And uh, yeah, no, they, they, didn't, they didn't get it. And he subjected himself to them. But you know, you, you read about Mary and it constantly says, and she pondered these things in her heart. I and mean, she's still trying to put together exactly who this kid is. And what am I supposed to be doing is his mom. His own hometown throws him out. In fact, they try to kill him. And this is, the, this is the life of Jesus. Of course, we know how it's going to eventually end. He's going to be convicted in a sham trial and crucified. So it's not surprising that the life of Jesus is the life of someone who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who is, came into his own and his own received him not. They should have bowed down and worshipped him. Instead, they, they hate him. They'll end up crucifying him. So this is the only moment in all four Gospels where it says Jesus rejoiced in his spirit. All right, why did he rejoice? Well, the first reason he rejoiced was because he says this. He rejoices in his spirit and says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the things of the kingdom, the things of the gospel. You've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and instead have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So the truth of God, the first thing Jesus rejoices about. When he looks at his disciples, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm really glad the demons are subjected to you, but you need to rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And then Jesus rejoices and says, I'm so glad that God is at work in the lives of ordinary people. I'm so glad that God did not decide to only pick the elite, to only pick those with Great intelligence, or those with great wealth, or great power, or those who those who were the somebodies in the world. Thank you, Lord, that God the Father, you picked the nobodies. Now it's not that God didn't pick any of the somebodies. I mean there were occasional, but not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh. But God chose the foolish, God chose the simple, God chose those the the gospel. The thing about the gospel is the only way you ever believe the gospel is when you humble yourself. So it's only the humble that truly understand who God is. And then he goes on and he's got, a, he's got another reason to rejoice. And he says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one who knows, no one knows the, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If you want to know who God really is, and you want to know who the Son really is, that only happens, and the passage is clear, right? Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me. I've got everything. God has given me all power. And we'll talk about that in a second. But then he says, no one knows who the Son is, who I truly am. Not, no one really knows who I am except the Father. The only one who really understands who Jesus is in, in the fullest way is the Father. And no one really knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If you know the Father, if you know God, if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, okay, I I I mean, obviously, I'm not omniscient, but I do actually understand who the God of the Bible is. I understand that he is the creator, that he is omnipotent and omniscient, that he is the one who made the heavens and the earth. He is righteous and holy, and he sent his son to die for me. If you know that and you understand that, here's why you know and understand that. It's not because you're wise. It's not because... You're intelligent, it's not because you're clever. It's it's not because you somehow figured that out. Here's why you know that. Because the Son willed to reveal it to you. So I'd like to talk for just a moment about that. Now, this is one of those teachings that I think sometimes unnecessarily makes us a little uncomfortable. We look at that and we think, hmm, now wait a minute here. Are you actually saying, are you saying what I think you're saying? Um, Isn't God gracious to everyone? Doesn't God extend the same grace to everyone? Doesn't, Doesn't everyone have an equal opportunity to hear and to understand? Are you implying somehow that Jesus doesn't will to reveal the Father to everyone? Well, you've got the same Bible I've got. You tell me, what does it say? I mean, Jesus just got done telling us, I thank you, O Lord, that you did not. That, in fact, you hid these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. So, the passage itself states quite plainly that, yes, in fact, God has a particular group of people to whom he reveals himself, and he has another group of people from whom he hides himself. Those who are self-sufficient, those who are certain that they are the ones who are in the know and that they don't really need God, and they're doing just fine all on their own, those folks, God doesn't reveal himself to them. Now, here's the, here, here's the problem that we have. We think, well, that's, that doesn't seem fair. Well, okay, so let's talk about what would actually be fair. Here's what would be fair. God doesn't reveal himself to anybody except the Son. That's fair. And that's what we forget. We somehow think that the grace of God, which, by the way, stop for just a second and think about exactly what it is that grace is. Grace, by definition, is undeserved kindness and merit and favor. So you can't obligate God to be gracious to you. God is actually under No obligation to be gracious to anyone. God never had to choose Abraham. God didn't have to choose Isaac. God didn't have to choose Jacob or Judah, the tribe of Judah. God didn't have to choose any of them. And in fact, if you come Sunday nights, you will by now have realized that Abraham, great man of faith, he will do great acts of faith. But (laughs) we've already seen that Abraham is a guy that's uh, um, given the opportunity. He's been known to be less than completely forthcoming about exactly who his wife is. And, and he's got some interesting issues. We'll look at the life of Isaac when we get to him. And we will discover that Isaac as well, uh, his wife Rebecca will have two sons in her womb, and she will go to God and say, what is the deal here? And God will say, there are two nations wrestling within you, and the elder will serve the younger. And yet we'll see that when the moment comes for Isaac to pass on the blessing, and he passes it on to who he thinks is the elder, one of the part of that blessing is that you will rule over your brother. Isaac, what are you doing here? You know what God's revealed will is here, and yet you are deliberately trying to thwart it. You won't succeed in that, by the way. Uh, Jacob and Esau. How does, you, God chose Jacob and not Esau. Why? Well, Jacob was a better guy. Really? You think so, huh? Have you actually looked at the life of Jacob? I mean, this guy, whoo Which, by the way, you need to come on Sunday nights. That's why I encourage you to come on Sunday nights. Jacob is a guy who is, he's got a serious list of problems. So does Esau. I mean, it's not like Esau is any better, and that's the reality. We all have a very serious list of problems. And God is under no obligation to be gracious to a single one of us. But he does choose to be gracious to a group of people. Who? The people who are humble. The people who acknowledge that they are sinners. The fact is that grace and mercy and kindness and compassion is available to anyone who would Humbly accept it. I mean, that is the reality. If you will humble yourself before God, if you will come to Him and say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, it's all yours. You can have it. This same exchange occurs in Matthew. Let me let me read to you in Matthew. Jesus again says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Anyone, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he says this. Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus makes it clear that no one can know the Son No one can know the Father, except it's revealed to them. And then he says, but come unto me, all you who are heavy laden. All of you. Anyone can come. The question is, do you want to come? Now, exactly how do we completely merge these two truths in this world? And the answer to that is, we can't. We don't know exactly how these things work. How does God and his omniscience and his omnipotence go about choosing a certain group of people, bringing them to salvation, and another group of people he simply leaves to their own choices, which, by the way, they're, they're happy with their choices. Uh, how does God do that without violating anybody's free will? I have no idea. I don't, you know, if you can figure that out, let me know. I don't think anybody knows that. The reality is, from our perspective, from all of us sitting here, and I've never talked to anyone that this wasn't their perspective, when you heard the gospel... As far as you were concerned, you chose God. The gospel made sense. You're like, wow, I am a sinner. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And you're kidding me? God sends his own son to die for me? Really? Ah uh, okay. What what? What what do I do? You just you just thank God for that? Well yeah, boy, I, I am thankful for that. Where where's God? How do I talk to him? Oh, you just just bow my head and talk to God? Okay, let me add it. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son for me. And as far as we're concerned, it was all us. It's not until we actually look at God's perspective and look at what he says that it becomes clear that, well, you know, <clears throat> actually your name was written in the land's book of life before the foundation of the world. How do we reconcile those? Well, here's the thing no one is going to arrive at the great right throne judgment and stand before God and say to him, you know what? I wanted to choose you, but you wouldn't let me. (laughs) No, no one's going to say that. The fact is that left to ourselves, every single one of us would reject God. And God would be perfectly righteous and just and holy to let us all make that choice. The fact is that God picked from sinners because there wasn't anybody else to pick from. There is none that understand it. There is none that seeketh it after God. They're all gone out of their way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. It's out of that group of people that God, in his grace, decided to save some. That's God's choice. And the fact is that it is grace. And instead of kind of feeling like, well, I don't know, that doesn't seem fair, what we should say is, I can't believe God saved anybody. Well, what in the world was God thinking? You're kidding me. You look down in this world, on this group of angry Miserable, rebellious, selfish, proud. We hate God. You actually pick some of those folks? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Yep. Wow. And you sent your son to die for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's the message. And, you know, when the gospel comes to you, you say, well, how do we know? How do we know who God has chosen? I mean, how do, how do we know? Well, first of all, you don't know, which is why you should preach the gospel to everybody. But if you want to know what it looks like, here's what it looks like. People that God is speaking to, and by the way, the Spirit of God, it moves like the wind. You, you, you see the results, but you don't actually see the wind. So you have no idea where the Spirit of God is, is working. You have no idea the person you're talking to with God, what kind of conversation they've been having with God and how long they've been having it. So when you speak the gospel to them, here's what you see. You know what? They don't need a bunch of clever arguments. They, they, they don't need you to, to, you know, wrestle them down and force them to admit something. You don't need all kinds of great, amazing evidence. There is, by the way, a lot of great evidence where the death and resurrection of christ there are a lot of good arguments as to why you should become a christian they don't need to see miracles what happens when the spirit of god comes upon someone is they are humble you think well how about miracles i mean okay let's just take a second here and think about miracles one of the most miraculous times in all of mankind was when God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Remember, he did the ten plagues. And when they actually got out of the nation, and uh, they finally, you know, Pharaoh's like, go. You know, The whole country's like, get out of here. They end up getting stuck, remember, lost in the wilderness, at least Pharaoh thought they were. And they're up against the Red Sea, and it's like, okay, let's go back and get them. And God actually opens the Red Sea. That generation actually walks across the bottom of the Red Sea with walls of water on either side and make it to the other side, walking across on dry ground. And when they get to the other side and the Egyptians try to do the same thing, it, as soon as they get in the middle of it, the water comes in and kills Pharaoh's entire army. They, want, they go in the wilderness. God is right there with them. He's, at, he's at a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. They actually hear God speak to them. They watch Korah get consumed by the earth. This is incredible. Talk about miracles. And what do we know about that generation? Well, they're actually put forward as an example of um, <clears throat> what you don't want to be. That's what they are. They're constantly brought forward as, yeah, that wicked, grumbling, rebellious generation, those, those grumbling Israelites. You know, only two of that entire generation actually made it in the promised land Joshua and Caleb. That's it. Everybody else, the whole, all of them. And there were well over a million of them all died. They just all died in the wilderness. All those miracles. All the, You think, if I could just see a miracle, I'd believe. You think so? You think so? And let's look here in the New Testament. You know, we jump up to the New Testament and we look. And, and right here in the passage we're at, right in this time frame here, and, and right in Luke chapter 10, 9, 10, here Jesus has just spent a year and a half in the Galilean region. And he has done every miracle you can possibly think of. He has taken the blind and given them sight. He has has taken the leper and cleansed them. He has even halted funerals and taken the person that they're taking to the graveyard and raised them up and handed them back to their loved ones. And when it's all done, he's he's eradicated illness and, and any kind of disease or sickness or affliction that anyone has had. He sent out the 12 and the 70. I mean, they have just obliterated They've reversed the curse. And how does it end? Woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Woes. then some woes. All these miracles. We think, well, if we could just do miracles, you know, people would believe. I, you know, I don't know that we're ever going to find Noah's Ark. I don't know if it's actually out there. I, I, I don't know if we'll ever find it. It'd be interesting if we did. And one of the things that would be very interesting is... Um, Sorry to say it, but all of the disappointed Christians who think that, well, if we found Noah's Ark, people would believe. Yeah, not so much. I, I hope you don't think that. Noah built the Ark, did they believe then? So you think if we found it now, they'd believe now? I mean, it'd be a great conversation, you know, it'd be, it'd be a good opening. You could sure share the gospel with more people than you're probably sharing it with now, but actually bring about belief. People, people don't believe due to a lack of the evidence. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of understanding who God is. People know who God is. I mean, come on, there's two explanations for how we got here. One is that the universe was created by an extremely, if not omniscient intelligence, who designed this place and put it all together and and made it so that we could live here. The other one is, well, I don't know, there was just a big explosion and it made itself. Yeah, right, let's see which one of those. It's not hard. It's not hard. People don't reject the gospel because they somehow can't believe it. They reject the gospel because they will not. They will not have this man rule over them. They will not. That's the issue here with the gospel. That's the issue. So, when we come to God... Here's what it takes. Belief. Hebrews, very clear. Hebrews 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is what it takes. Humility. It takes us to humble ourselves and to say, I need a savior. I need the creator. I'm not omniscient or omnipotent and I am not the center of the universe. And in fact, the very fact that I might somehow in my heart harbor ideas that I might be, is in and of itself an indication that I uh, really think way too highly of myself. So we need to come to God with humility. This, by the way, is exactly what Jesus rejoices in. I rejoice in you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you didn't reveal these things through a bunch of Powerful, clever arguments and through a bunch of logic or through evidences or through, you know, convincing people and wrestling them down to the ground and making them believe and uh, you revealed it simply to those who are humble. To share the gospel, don't ever hesitate to share the gospel because you think, well, I I don't know. This person's going to ask me questions I can't answer. There's one answer to give to questions you can't answer. You know what the answer is? I don't know. It'll work. I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's, it's astounding how well that works. You should try it. Just, I, I don't know. Don't talk about stuff you don't know. Talk about what you do know. Here's what I do know. God sent his son to die for people who didn't deserve it. That I know. Why don't we talk about that for a minute? And don't get yourself dragged off into Revelation and Ezekiel and who in the world knows what, you know. Start talking about the Nephilim and don't, don't, don't go there. Don't, don't go there. Just talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. It's, the, the gospel is so plain and so clear. God is perfect. We aren't. Do you know anybody who claims to be perfect? I mean, there's an occasional person here and there. On the whole, we have no problem admitting that no one is perfect. As followers of Jesus, we should strive, and exemplify, by the way, being the most kind, compassionate, gracious, generous, loving, forgiving people and the whole world. That should be us. We should reflect the character of God. Everyone should want to be part of the group that we are part of, the church of God. People should be begging to let us make them a part of that. That's who we should be. We should be the folks who are at peace. We are not the blind ones here. We are the people who actually see. Why? Because we see the love of God. And anyone that we share the gospel with, if they will simply turn to God, they too can accept the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God offers. People will spend eternity in hell because they didn't accept that they're not, they're not going to pin that on God. They're not going to look at God and say, it's your fault. It's not God's fault. God sent his own son. God, God throws out the gospel to anyone who wishes to believe it. Their problem is they won't believe it. They won't submit. They will not have this man rule over them, but forgiveness is available to them. Look at the life of Judas. How many times did Jesus say to Judas, and not and necessarily look right at Judas, but he did multiple times say, You know, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and woe, woe to the man who betrays him. It'd be better for him that he were never born. How, d- did that work? I mean, did Judas go, Oh my, I, you know, I, I probably shouldn't do this. Share the gospel with people. It's on them. It's, it's on them. Which is why we don't have to be angry. We don't have to be argumentative. We don't, we, don't, we don't have to be aggressive. We can be kind, gracious, compassionate, loving. Just share the love of Christ. If there's any wrestling going on, it's theirs. And they're not, by the way, wrestling with you they're wrestling with God. Step back, let them wrestle with God. I mean, if they get mad at you, you go, look, it's, it's, it's the Bible right here. God said that. I mean, you can get mad at me if you want, but I didn't write this thing. It's been around for a couple of thousand years now. And oh, by the way, this has been in there for the whole 2,000 years. I didn't just you know, write it yesterday or this afternoon, just you know, before I had this conversation with you. This is what God says. If you have a problem with that, you might want to talk to God about it. Share the gospel. Share the love of Christ. People don't need miracles. All well, they might think they do. They don't. No miracle is going to convince them. If they're not convinced by the love of Christ, they're not going to be convinced with a miracle. They don't need clever arguments. You don't have to come up with them. I mean, you, I, you, I teach an apologetics class. You should take it. It's great for us as believers to look at that and go, yeah, I knew I didn't have to throw my brains out to be a Christian. This all makes great sense, and it does. But you can't argue anybody into heaven because it really doesn't require that much of an argument. Jesus was clearly a historical person. He clearly lived. He clearly died. And he clearly had a group of followers who were willing to die to stand up and to say they saw him risen from the dead. You know, the National Enquirer may print about the lady who thinks she had a baby with some Martian, you know, but somehow I get the feeling that if you tied her to a stake and put some dry sticks around her and stood there with a torch that she might actually change that story. She She just might. They didn't. They didn't. So we have like the most powerful testimony that mankind can produce that Jesus died and rose from the dead. If they don't believe it, it's not due to a lack of evidence. It's due to a lack of humility. It's due to an unwillingness to yield, to submit. This is the way God has planned it, and in fact it's pleasing in his sight. This this is this makes Jesus rejoice. The doctrine of God choosing the humble causes Jesus to rejoice. Do I need to follow that up whether it should cause us to rejoice too? I I'll say it, but it seems unnecessary. And in fact, here's the thing that Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. All things. They've all been handed over to me. So I don't know about you, but what a fantastic thing, right? What an amazing thing. Jesus is very thrilled about that. You know what? So am I. Can you imagine anyone else that you want in charge of everything? Jesus... Okay, we live in a world, if you've been watching the news or or just you know reading anything, I mean, it, it's interesting. We are in interesting times. You can feel a little uncertain. You might feel a little insecure. You might kind of wonder exactly where the world is heading as we kind of careen into the future. And you know what seemed to be a solid and stable and... Growing and thriving, and finally getting maybe in the right direction. As uh, I mean, you know, suddenly we are wobbling, and we're wondering if the steering wheel is really all that secure. And 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 you and you might you might be tempted to be filled with distress and anxiety and fear. And you know what? Don't be. Why? All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus is in charge. The fact is, sometimes life is going to go great. And that's great. Uh, The fact is, sometimes life is not going to go great. And if we allow the circumstances of this life to affect our inner peace and joy, we are going to be miserable a lot of times. And we don't need to be. We can rejoice. Here, guess what? Your name is written in the land's book of life. No matter what happens in this world, we will spend eternity in heaven. Now, obviously, we want this world to go well. It's appropriate to pray for our leaders that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives. But the fact is the fact is, the history of the church from the time of Christ is such that a whole lot of folks have not led peaceable lives. And there have been persecution. And there have been people who have gone after those who are believers. But Jesus is in charge. Who else would you like to have in charge except the one who literally laid down his life for us? Jesus is the one who died on our behalf. He literally gave his life to redeem us. Who in the world else would we want to have in charge? And come the day of judgment, who will sit on the throne as the judge? Jesus. He says, all judgment has been given unto me. And, and when we want a lawyer, we're like, okay, I'm in the courtroom here and the judge is sitting up there and I need a lawyer. Guess who's going to be our lawyer? Jesus. And he's not going to bring any charges against us. Because all the charges that he should have brought against us, he's already paid for. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All things have been given to or handed over to him by the Father. Praise God. I can't think of anyone else in the entire universe I'd rather have in charge than Jesus. The captain of our salvation. The one who died in our place, the one who gave his very life, gave it. No one took it. Nobody took the life of Jesus. He gave it. He gave it for us. He died for us. He died in our place. I don't care what this world throws at us. We are written in the land's book of life. Why? Because we came to him in humility. We said, okay, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need, I need salvation. That's why preach the gospel to every creature. You have no idea who God is at work, whose life He's at work at. You You just don't have any idea. You don't know who God is calling. You don't know who God is talking to. You don't know who God is in their life. And when they hear this message that God offers forgiveness, they suddenly go, That's me. Preach it, speak it, talk about it. Jesus is in charge. And by the way, if you're If you're filled with anxiety and you're filled with fear and you're you're just... Please don't be. Don't be. God is in control. Things may go great good, things may not. Okay. doesn't matter. Our joy is in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And that's what this passage is showing us. Jesus rejoices in his spirit. And I'm not going to re-preach the sermon, but you should go back and listen and remember he rejoiced. And if you look at this time frame in Jesus' life, this is when things are really not going good. And they're only going to get worse. And yet he rejoices. That should be us. Let's rejoice. Let's rejoice that our names are written in the land's book of life. Let's rejoice that Jesus is in charge. Let's rejoice that he's our Lord and our Savior and the captain of our salvation. And our sins are forgiven rejoice in that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are, in fact, in charge. And events unfold as they do because you are allowing them to. They will try us. They will test us. They will give us opportunity to earn great reward. May we stay faithful. Thank you, Lord, for the great God you are. Thank you that Jesus came and died for us. May we love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And share that with our neighbors. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.